a great specialist of energy, but uh, I was lucky enough to listen to a wonderful podcast uh, on the Colombian Energy Exchange. And uh, two great specialists, um, including Anne-Sophie Corbeau, and I think her name is, uh, well, she's on Twitter under the, the, the handle Mitrovat. Um, they were talking about precisely this, and they were they had a very sober outlook. They were saying um, that it would require a lot of government intervention uh, and a lot of government choices um, to to settle the problem. This is it's not going to be a, a free market story. The, um, the the government was was going to have to choose between consumer um, uh, private private citizens going cold or uh, industries shutting down. And also there is going to be some arbitrage at the European level. Um, they're giving the example of the, of uh, Czechia, uh, whose most of, it, of uh, the Czech gas goes through Germany. And they were saying, based on what we saw uh, before, not sure exactly what they were referring to, but we can think about the, the, the mask situation in the beginning of the, the COVID. Um, the first COVID wave. Um, so they were saying, what, based on what we saw before, it's very unlikely that um, uh, Germany will allow uh, Czech gas to go, go through their pipelines without intervening and trying to say, well, we don't care, but the the, the Czech consumers, uh, when the German consumers are going cold or when the German industries have to, have to close, uh, we want that gas and we'll keep it. So there seems to be... Um, uh, a huge question mark on the ability of the Europeans to cooperate. And of course, this sort of uh, bigger than neighbor, uh, zero sum game approach um, would create massive tensions within the EU and in return would limit the ability of the Europeans to fight efficiently against, uh, against the pressure of Russia and to support Ukraine. Uh, they had an extremely, extremely uh, pessimistic uh, outlook and uh, I cannot blame them on this, uh, which, by the way, is, um, if nothing else, is yet another reason to, to, to support Ukraine and to, to get them to, um, to, to finish the war as soon as possible. Um, because it's, it's, yeah, it, it looks bleak. Um, and I was, but, you know, we have to, to, to stay uh, cognizant of the fact that Sometimes um, the situation is not that dark, uh, and uh, some people do benefit from us considering that it's the the situation is is much worse than than what we expect. But it's it, there are cause for concerns. Dominus falling asleep. I am not, not falling asleep. Um, I am not blaming you. I'm not blaming you. I have I have not fallen asleep. My mute button is being really sticky today. And sometimes it takes me five or six attempts to be able to unmute. And uh, that's uh, it's very frustrating, even though it's being both charged and cooled at the same time. Anyway, um, where were we? Right. So I think lots of different, um, uh, I think there's, there's lots of different things that can be done. And I think the easiest thing to supplement some of the gas is to switch for some purposes where, where possible, right? from A, from uh, gas to other sources of electricity generation. And this is where it would be very important. Germany wouldn't be shutting down all of those nuclear power plants. It doesn't have to shut down, right? Because 
quite a lot of gas in Europe is used to produce electricity. Um, those uh, uh, those um, uh, uh, German nuclear power plants are actually some of the more modern ones that they're deciding to shut down and they can adjust the electricity demand relatively quickly. Uh, it would actually reduce quite a lot of need for natural gas for electricity production. And that would also help, of course, with um, you know the, the general energy picture and the general need for the the general need for gas. So it would be very beneficial. If we started with that because there, then we actually can um, uh, use less gas in Europe. The other thing is apparently so the EU gas storage is according to Ursula von der Leyen are currently sixty two percent full, which is better than I think many people thought. It's not great. Um, but it's a it's a good start as well. So maybe the situation isn't quite as bleak as has been suggested by some. Um, and if it does, if consumption actually does go down by fifteen percent, that uh, I'm guessing that actually could be just about enough. Let's see, Mr. Pickle. Uh, yeah. So um, one thing that is often overlooked is the the uh, the, the HIMARS and the M two seventies. Uh, they are offensive weapons, right? They are not necessarily defensive. So, if you're going. Into, oh, that's uh, a distinction. No, no, no. You're you're like three months out of date with even making that distinction. It was made very clear by Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, that there is no such thing as a defensive weapon or an offensive weapon, and that Ukraine needs all the weapons. Right. Uh, I mean, uh, so the way you could use them, right? Uh, even if it's not necessarily the designated label on them, right? Uh, you know, so for example, you could hit a ground target with with S three hundred. It's not made for that, but you just do it because you uh, you need to. Uh, but um, I mean, given that the um, Ukrainian air force is still active, but it's not uh, there's not enough firepower in uh, my opinion. So I think what uh, what I would do is uh, I would uh, I would put a lot of uh, a lot of uh, MLR, uh, I'm sorry MLRSs around Kherson on the night of the attack. And basically, if you put uh, 10 between uh, 270s and uh, HIMARS, you would uh, have the ability to strike dozens of targets at the same time. Um, and if you already are taking out all the uh, uh, old uh, uh, S-300s and 400s, you will have uh, the your Air Force to protect them, not basically to actually be the uh, guys uh, doing the, uh, the bombing. So yeah, um, and uh, the other thing is uh, the there is a shortage, right, of uh, Russian uh, meat. That's how they uh, treat them. So I think that once you hit the the uh, the, the front lines, let's say, which is more meat, because um, they 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 also don't care about them. So the rest will be uh, relatively easy to just roll in, um, especially if you have a lot of. Uh, uh, firepower that is overwhelming, like Shakano, basically. So yeah, I, I think it's gonna be good, and uh, we'll see. That's how I would do it. But I don't know. I'm not a military guy. I mean, yeah, sure, more more firepower. That's definitely a, a good idea when you're trying to launch a counterattack. I I don't I don't really know if there's much to uh, much to comment beyond that. Um, indeed, Ukrainians have been taking out S300, S400. Uh, S300 and S400 um, uh, sites around Kherson, uh, in Kherson Oblast, both around Kherson and Novokovka, and uh, their capability simply has been 
has been depleted already there. So that's uh, it's good. Um, right back to back to energy, Mikola. Um, yeah, right to add some bits. So <clears throat> what happened is that uh, Germany had basically reduced the dependency on Russian gas from fifty-five to about thirty-five percent of its demand. Uh, since the start of Ukraine, which is kind of a huge progress at least for Germany because they were not doing it for two decades and only were increasing the dependency. And at the moment, what we have is that basically um, the why there is a such also kind of, um, not the crisis, but at least uh, so much talking about gas in Europe is because uh, from 11th of July, we have the uh, one of the pipelines not servicing the Europe because it's uh, on an annual, basically, um, how should I say it, on the annual refurbishment. And uh, that's why there was a huge crisis, as you know about it, about uh, Canadian exporting the turbines, right? So all those factors are being connected. So at the moment, what we have is that most of the gas that comes actually to Europe is being sent uh, through Ukraine. So it's around 40%. Uh, and it's done through the Soyuz pipeline, um, which has continued to work during all of this time of the war. And uh, as you understand, uh, the Russians are not really shelling it because they don't want to, um, as, they continue, as they still want to export their gas and earn money from it. So uh, one thing just to remember is that uh, basically there were some projections about uh, tougher winter. So in case if actually the gas, um, you know, if there is not enough gas for winter for Germany and other European countries, we are talking about the decrease of their GDP. And this is being expected to be to almost 1.5%. Um, the reason why there is such a high dependency on gas, because it is relatively cheap and because a lot of manufacturers were using gas for a long time. And that's what allowed those countries to get ahead of others because of cheap manufacturing through the Russian gas. <clears throat> What we, need, what we actually need to remember in all of this is that um, there are alternatives uh, and those alternatives are being discussed consistently. That's what we've seen what happened with the oil. So, for example, with the oil, um, you know, President Biden was actually visiting Saudi Arabia to negotiate regarding the prices and uh, the prices were going down. So um, with the gas, it's something a bit more uh, of a problem because um, as... I think we discussed it, I think, one month ago, probably. But um, the problem is actually the reservoirs as well. So it's very hard to store the gas. And uh, some countries, they have a different type of gas. For example, in France, um, they have a rigid one. So it's very hard to transport it to other parts of Europe where the gas is not being used as such. And uh, we should kind of remember that um, the main problem that we have nowadays is actually kind of like Germany in the sense, because they're dependent on it, okay? And we know that Germany is the one who is kind of uh, fueling the economy in European Union, and that's why we should focus on them. Um, although it's needless to mention actually another thing, that and now one of the biggest production, and I think it's the biggest now, is actually um, the Norwegians, Demand, I think it's correct. It's Norway who is supplying the gas to them as well, right? Yeah, Norway Norway does provide gas. There is a new pipeline that was built from uh, Norway to Denmark and onto Poland as well, among others. Yeah. So uh, they're the ones who are trying to kind of use this a little opportunity, which is great. And this will, in the long run, help. Uh, but we should remember is that, that actually Hungary declared uh, and um, 
what was it? They called it an energy security. Yeah, they they have an energy security meeting to discuss that basically Hungary will not export the gas uh, from Hungary beginning from August. And there was a meet with a fierce reaction from Brussels. So we should see what's going to happen in August because Hungary is promising not to deliver the gas. And of course, this will actually create more problems to the whole European Union in terms of, you know, fixing this issue. Um, yeah, let's just wait for that. But that's it from me. I don't really know a lot about the gas, unfortunately. Um, so, yeah. Ben? Um, no, but I, w- I wanted to continue on the, on the gas subject, but maybe you wanted to, to address directly what uh, Mikhail just said. Oh, okay. I thought you were going to talk about gas. Um, Hungary is an interesting place when it comes to all of this, because Hungary is indeed very dependent on both Russian oil and Russian gas, and they have also no interest whatsoever in removing any of that dependence anytime soon because of their particular governmental uh, leanings. Um, Something that kind of came out of Hungary seemingly over the past 24 hours is the deputy foreign minister, Levente Magyar, uh, was apparently in Lviv over the past uh, over the past few days. Um, and it has been reported, including uh, by the main Ukrainian um, uh, news agency uh, and the Lviv City Council, that Hungary is not against Western weaponry going to Ukraine via Hungary, which would be a big departure from what they were previously saying. Because for months now, not even overflights of arms headed for Ukraine. So, for example, if you had um, some arms in Bulgaria that you wanted to ship to Zeshuv in Poland to then go on to Ukraine, you had to, instead of flying across north, across Romania and Hungary and Slovakia into Poland, you have to go all the way around to through North Macedonia and Albania, over the Adriatic, enter at sort of Slovenia, Croatia, across Austria instead of Hungary, and then fly the long way around to Poland, doubling the, the, the transit time easily, right? And vastly increasing the cost, substantially increasing the cost of transport. Um, there's also a NATO transport wing that is based at an airbase in Hungary that has been, well, not allowed to use its, its own home base. Um, so were this true, were this true, um, this would be a big change in what the Hungarian position is. But I'm, I've just not seen anything in Hungarian media saying so. And I know that we have a Hungarian listener here who's, uh, who listens at least occasionally. If you're listening, can you have a big, quick you know, rummage through the various Hungarian outlets and, and maybe let me know if, um, um, if they're actually considering doing something like this or not? I'd be very curious to know. I'd be very, very curious to know, because I, I had a quick look yesterday, and at least yesterday when I looked, there was nothing yet written anywhere in, in, in various Hungarian outlets to this effect. Um, but now I see that there are some a little bit more serious ones. Um, anyway, uh, Ben, carry on with, with whatever else you had, and I'll have a yeah. bit more of a look. Yeah, well, the, the, yeah, the Hungarian, we need to be careful, but... Um... Yeah, fingers crossed. Um, we'll, we'll know the first time we see a, a plane uh, crossing crossing the airplanes. Now, I wanted to to talk also about still this uh, uh, podcast on um, Columbia Energy Exchange, which uh, again I strongly recommend. Uh, by the way, I've contacted the 
the the speakers. So maybe we'll be lucky enough to, to have them grace our space very soon. Um, but what I, uh, they they opened another very interesting uh, subject, which is the impact worldwide of the European um, scramble for energy. Because uh, yes, some of the extra energy that is imported by the European is new. Uh, that's true, but some of it isn't. Some of it is, has just been pried away from other countries. And uh, countries such as uh, India and um, Pakistan, Sri Lanka and Bangladesh are seeing their ability to have access to, to energy, to their usually source, usual source of energy, uh, declining very, very fast. And they are in a real bind. And that's precisely the moment when Russia is coming to them, proposing some uh, uh, some good deals. And the the two speakers uh, were were explaining how this is something that needs to be taken into account, and that um, through this winter, the pressure to to keep uh, German uh, factories running and French houses warm is going to be enormous on on the, the politicians of, of, the, of the European countries, but uh, completely destroying the economy of Bangladesh for the sake of uh, not closing for a few weeks um, the German pharmaceutical com uh, companies is, it's gonna be, it's gonna be a balance that needs to be, to be struck. And, uh, and so, yeah, there, there, there are problems on, on that, uh, the global scale as well. But, What's interesting is that over the past uh, few hours, uh, information has emerged that um, LNG shipments, five cargoes full of LNG, uh, LNG uh, that were meant to arrive from Russia to India have been cancelled. Um, the, the, the word used by the, by the Indian press is uh, defaulted. So I have to say I'm not a specialist of energy, um, and I'm sure Ryan or other people could explain to us what defaulting on an MLG shipment actually means. But it's going to be very interesting uh, to, to, to see this because um, there, there are pressures in, in every direction and it's not as easy as that for, for the Russian to deliver uh, what, they, what they would like to deliver for political reasons. And so, so there's the race, um, and the Europeans and the Americans are going to, are going to have to be very, very careful, uh, very fast at, uh, at handling it. Uh, and it's going to be interesting. Uh, it's going to be, it's going to be um, uh, difficult. Um, and uh, hopefully, it's yet again um, uh, one situation out of which the Russians are going to come out uh, right there. Um, so, is there any idea why why they're not sending the LNG to to India? Is it a um, is it a technology problem? I assume not, because I don't I don't see anyone. Um, there, there's no reason for it to be a technology problem. I don't think so. Uh, it seems just to be um, it's either political or more short-term technical, they may not have access to the, the, to the cargo. Um, there's nothing I can uh, read in the... In the uh, no, no, sorry. It's not exactly true. There's a question related to um, 
to the sanctions. Um, but yeah, I'm reading the words, but I, I really don't understand what's going on. Uh, if you give me one minute, I'm, I'm going to put more attention into it and uh, try to, to come back to it, to come back to you on this. Okay, thank you, Ben. Um, that that sounds uh, sounds good to me. I'm I'm just you know just speculating here, but you know if uh, if Russians are not sending scheduled LNG ships to India, I would presume there is either a problem with transport, be it oh Ben, do you have an answer already? Either a problem with transport or a problem with the compressor technology, basically. Okay, I'm gonna read it out loud because I think it's it's fairly. Um, it was complex and fairly obvious. So it's uh, out of uh, outlookindia.com. I don't know how trustworthy this, this source is. Um, and it reads, Russia has defaulted on the supply of at least five cargoes or shiploads of LNGs to India after its retaliatory sanction hit one of the companies that supply gas to India, sources say. So if I understand it correctly, the retaliatory sanction they're talking about are Russian sanctions. Um, so let me continue. India's largest gas firm, Gale, has a long-term deal to import 2.5 million tons of liquefied gas per annum from a Singapore-based unit of the Russian gas producer, Gazprom. The company has since June defaulted on the supply of firefly cargoes of LNG under that contract, citing difficulty in sourcing gas due to sanctions. Two sources briefed on the matter said, yeah. um, as, so it's not technical. There, uh, I, I think I get it. I think Singapore is the critical bit here, right? It's Singapore has imposed sanctions on Russia. Russia has imposed retaliatory sanctions in Singapore. That makes it impossible for gas from Singapore to function. So they couldn't actually get the gas through gas from Singapore because gas from Singapore is um, possibly no more. Yeah, it makes sense. I, I remember when Russia uh, announced that they, they were imposing sanctions. Uh, there, there were Singaporean um, companies involved, and I thought that was only specific, but that must be the, the one we're talking about. So they may be uh, talking directly to... They, I mean, they may change and um, uh, use some, some Indian intermediaries instead or something. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I, I think that... Uh... Um, that that makes good sense then. Okay, um, it's still kind of interesting, and uh, one would say almost amusing, as to um, no, as to what they're what what they're playing at, not not figuring out a different way uh, to get stuff to India because India has been relatively supportive of Russia thus far, at yeah, least very they're, much. They're sanction, sanctioning their own exports, which is strange. But yeah, sorry, Donald. No, 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 no. That's that's exactly right. That's exactly right. In uh, in other news, um, especially Kherson Cat has actually found some train that the Russians are trying to now steal from Kherson while the railway bridge at Kherson uh, is still operational and functional. Um, there's a there's a rail there's a there's a train uh, being moved from the port of Kherson somewhere by the occupation authorities, and it seems like uh, out there. Maybe really packing up, just looking around for things they can steal, and uh, and the train is the sort of thing that's easy to steal. Yeah, and there's a a long tradition of stealing trains from um, from occupied territories. Um, the, okay, do you mind if I repeat something CJ said yesterday? Uh, no, go ahead. Space? Oh, wonderful. 
um, just talking about the um, high Mars, and no, sorry, just talking about the the fact that of the past uh, few days, at least two Russian uh, airplanes, fairly um, uh, modern ones as well, uh, were shot down. Um, one by the um, Ukrainian anti-aircraft artillery, and the other one by the Russians themselves. So friendly fires, um, and it was uh, so. In, in its question was: the Russian air force apparently has been uh, um, making a lot more sorties recently, uh, and and taking a lot more um, uh, losses, and he was wondering why, and. His interpretation of this is based on where those two planes were shot down. It's likely that they just uh, taxi um, along the the front line, and whenever they can, uh, and what sorry, and whenever they see some uh, high mars uh, uh, flying the, the the missiles or the rockets, uh, they try to intercept them, and so they're they're they have those very modern modern uh, fighter jets. Trying to that costs tens of millions of dollars each. Trying to intercept um, high-mass rockets uh, that each of them um, cost a few couple couple thousand euros or a couple thousand dollars or maybe twenty thousand dollars max. Um, and and they're trying to they're trying to shoot them down. I thought that was that was quite interesting because that shows that they're not even aiming at the at the launchers themselves. They apparently don't consider that they have a fighting chance to to access them. They're just trying to intercept the missiles and the rockets, um, and and that, that absolutely blew my mind. So it's only a, it's only working here. Uh, CJ cannot cannot prove it, but I thought it made a lot of sense. And um, yeah, I wanted to 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 repeat this because he said it something around like it was. Two o'clock in Paris, so most of the European listeners were were not there. So, yeah, just just repeating this one. Oh, and by the way, the question was how do they, how are they trying to address the, the launches themselves to attack the launches themselves? And according to Shogun, might be by um, special ops, uh, special ops teams, and um, Gurney, as well as um, Raven, were trying to, to see how was going, going to happen, and they were basically saying that the high rise are potentially 20 kilometers beyond the front line. Um, it's going to be extremely difficult for uh, a small spe- uh, special ops unit to actually manage to to access the IMRs uh, effectively and destroy them quasi impossible. Um, so, so they they were saying that they're sending that. If, if they are actually trying to do this, the the Russian high command is sending their the best troops to be to be uh, killed and uh, without any chance of uh, completing it. There. So, in other words, they're they're using the planes to try to shoot down the individual high mars gimlers. And has have, has there been any note on if they've been successful in the slightest yet, or um, not so much? I've I've seen pictures, but on. Um... Russian propaganda um, uh, on Russia propaganda. Um, uh, what do you call them? Twitter, Twitter spaces, Twitter uh, pages. Uh, so they claim they have, but uh, I think I've seen two different uh, rockets um, that they said were shot down, and they're saying uh, shot down by 
S four hundred, not by not by applied. But yeah, the, if if there has been success, they're extremely limited. Okay, that is then very much extremely limited. It's really not worth losing your, uh, you know, fighters that cost tens of millions of dollars per per missile, right, Mikola? Yeah, you started talking about uh, Herson. I wanted to kind of um, bring some news to the English audience and to tell what is actually happening in Herson, because we hear a lot about the the city. We hear a lot about the bridges, but we need to understand what's happening there. <clears throat> so. Um, Herson has been without connection for a month and a half now, and that's why a large, a large number of people actually switched to Russian, uh, uh, you know, kind of, um, what's it called, SIM cards. So they need to have a connection to work and everything. Although there are enough stubborn and people who actually continue to run, you know, kind of almost Wi-Fi points, um, and I don't know how they're not being called. <clears throat> The city is actively carrying out various ongoing repairs. So the roads, buildings, uh, the station hall, and so on. And most of the Ukrainians think that this is just uh, Russians uh, using the budget money for the city and the local areas to show it to Russian propaganda that everything is fine. Uh, despite the fact that actually the, a lot of state employees who are actually working in Kherson, they still didn't receive their salary for May. The city literally turned into the 90s, so the territories around the markets expanded several times. From now on, almost the entire pedestrian zone near the markets has turned into a big place of spontaneous trade. So, of course, there is a fee for being you know, covered by the roof, like in the 90s in Moscow. So if you're selling something on the market, you, know, you have to pay some fee to the orcs, uh, Russian soldiers, because, you know, if you don't, they will come and just steal your products or something like that. Russian goods have become, you know, everyday thing, basically. <clears throat> Ukrainian goods are usually smuggled because um, it's very hard to get them. So the price is, of course, going to be reflected on that. Ukrainian uh, goods, actually, if they are available, they are mainly available from the occupied territories, such as like Melitopol, Kahovka, Berdyansk, and something like that. And that's why price tags in every single shop is in Ukrainian grievance and in rubles. With medicines, the situation is actually the same. Um, it actually, it's very bad quality because it's a Russian, it's a dirty as you expected. However, the price without exaggeration is inflated by five or even 10 times. So it's very hard to actually, um, you know, um, for elderly people to get the medication that they usually use because unfortunately, it, the war is, infl you know, inflated the prices for all of those goods. <clears throat> Moreover, uh, the Russian uh, kind of humanitarian aid, they seized it, so they don't give any medications whatsoever. And if you, if you want to receive anything, you have to come to them and beg. And if you beg, they will obviously ask something in return. So either record a video with you uh, to say that Russians are the greatest and they're giving you something, and etc. <clears throat> Um, any Ukrainian banks in, in Kherson, they just don't exist at, at all. So what you have, you have people who are used as banks. So they are actually, in uh, Russians, they called Barigi, who actually come with their own money or with the currency that they have, and they change the money to people because the banks, they don't exist. So um, basically, yeah, it, that's kind of a rough situation there. So from pensioners... Um, it's absolutely disgraceful because, you know, those huge 
crowd of pensioners they're standing next to those people and they're trying to get the um, the money and uh, what happens is that uh, you know those huge crowds that are standing there they have to receive the money um, from the russian fund so basically they're receiving they start receiving their pension in rubles and they do it on purpose because russian is obviously cheaper and uh, they can always just you know kind of uh, give the uh, people the, the money <clears throat> A lot of people left. So what happened is that the people from the local villages, they started coming to, um, you know, Kherson because that's the only way they can survive. People who could, they already escaped. And before even the Ukrainians started receiving um, Himars, um, basically those people were asking, you know, what's the way out? And some of them had to travel through really dangerous zone to actually get out of a city. The people who live in villages, they don't have any ability to do so they don't really have their cars so they don't have enough money to be smuggled you know for this and that's why unfortunately they have to come to the city because this is the only way to actually um to stay alive um there is a lot of actually information that orcs began to settle their families there um it wasn't actually confirmed by a lot of people but they start saying that they start appearing some russians from really far region they start settling them in Kherson. Um, despite all this kind of previous, uh, previous points, the city doesn't even smell for Russianness. So what happens is that basically those, you know, uh, all Ukraine, you know, all Ukrainians, they still want, um, to be, you know, um, in Ukraine, they still want everything to be as before. And that's why throughout the city, you can see a lot of people actually posting, not posting, but kind of drawing the, um, some notes like Ukraine will prevail, Ukraine will win, Ukraine forever. Um, there are a lot of partisans, and I think there has to be a separate threat or something we should discuss about the partisan methods that they're using. Because I've seen so many reports how just um, the Russian soldier is being found dead, or some two Russians went outside at night and didn't return, and all of those type of methods. So the population inside there, even though the one the one who could escape, you know, some of them actually stayed, and they're trying to do something from from inside the situation now. Uh, what happened is that the uh, Russians, what they started to do, they started actually settling in the uh, residential areas. So those Russian soldiers, they actually started hiding in the boarding schools. They started hiding in the lyceum. They started hiding in the, um, what's it called, Natovki Makarov base. So it's in the direction of the move to the ditch. So where there are all the storage facilities, probably one of them already exploded. Then actually, um, what they started doing is that because of a shelling from Himars, they started actually leaving with some of the people because they're scared that they're going to be, you know, just attacked. <clears throat> Although the Russian propaganda always claims that they never hide behind the uh, population and so on. And the last thing just to add is that basically the... Um, sorry. Oh, yeah. So what happens is that basically the... so. In order to uh, stop Ukrainians accessing the data where the Russians are hiding and everything, they started putting the plates on which they say that it is, uh, that with the inscription, it is mined. So what happens is that the people don't come to those areas because they're afraid, and it's possibly where the Russians are hiding. So they just, you know, they don't want to disclose this data not to be exploded. And uh, yeah, and uh, from the Ukrainian news, what I actually hear now is that um, Ukrainians are just waiting for this night to actually do a final strike on the bridge and they will block um, any transportation 
and this will actually help um, to later uh, kind of cut off the logistics and we're going to see how it's, you know, what's the result of it probably in a week or two. So that's kind of from me. Thank you, Don. Thank you, Mikhail. Um, kind of a few sort of clarificatory questions. Um, do you have a good idea at all how many people are left, say, in the city of Kherson or the urban area of Kherson? Uh, especially Kherson Kat last week and the week before was telling us that quite a lot of people have already left. Uh, maybe two thirds of the population has already left. So that's that's exactly what we mentioned. We don't really know the numbers because what happened is that the people who actually were looking after Kherson and everything, even the people who were working in Rada, they cannot actually calculate it without accessing the documentation there or actually asking the community. So, as you said, it's probably two-thirds of the city left, but we shouldn't forget that the only way how the villagers can survive is actually going to the city and trading something there. So that's why it looks like 90s and the people are trading there, uh, you know, just regular bazaars or like market. So even though the population left, the local, you know, the just villages, the people came to Kherson and they consistently travel in there. So that's why you wouldn't probably know um, maybe the population of Kherson is like remaining two-thirds of what, what it was, you know. Understood, understood. Do you have any sort of, a, okay, actually, two, two questions first. You mentioned some prices, right? Medicine, 10 times the price. Yes. Is yes, that yes, 10 yes. times compared to before the invasion or maybe 10 times compared to what the price is currently, for example, Crimea, occupied Crimea? No, so those the prices that are uh, from the beginning of the invasion. So, because um, what happened is that we obviously know when the, the invasion started and everything, people, and especially elderly people, they started running to the shops and buying all the medications because they knew what's, what's going to be happening. But then uh, when basically Russians reached Kherson, uh, the prices skyrocketed even further because, as I said previously, they don't supply any, any medication there. And uh, the elderly people, unfortunately, in Ukraine, they're very dependent on them. So um, I, can, I can give you a kind of little story and just a background story. So, for example, my grandmother, she's also Ukrainian, but unfortunately, um, it's kind of like in a psychology of Ukrainian people that, you know, in, in order to cure yourself or anything, you have to take a magic pill. <laughs> and it comes from the Soviet Union. And um, in, in comparison to the, you know, kind of uh, British method where the tablet is being given to you almost like when you're dying <laughs> in Ukraine, you should be giving something on the first or second day. And that's why a lot of those elderly people, they're, they're sitting on a lot of medications. And if they don't take them, they feel very bad. And, um, you know, they are constantly panic buying them. And that's what Russians are abusing as well. So they are, you know, they're ready to give us medications if uh, they get something in return, like a promotional video for propaganda or something like that. Understood, understood. And Mikola, do you have any sort of a grasp of what's going on? Okay, so let's let just outline this for the good people listening, right? Kherson Oblast is not very densely populated. There's very agricultural. There's large areas of steppe as well. Um, there's the big city of Kherson, which has a lot of people in it normally, and, and you know, some suburbs and such, like Chernobyevka and Antonovka and so on. Um, and then you have two smaller towns, one's across the river from Kherson called Oleshki, and one's Novakakovka further up the river, smaller cities. And then the rest of them are very small sort of 
you know, very small towns or villages only, right? There aren't really any other urban settlements, if I remember correctly. So, first of all, do you have any grasp of what's going on in Oleshki? Uh, Oleshki specifically, we hear quite a lot of stuff from Novakovka, but Oleshki specifically. Um, and then the villages, you know, the, have, have villages been sort of deserted to some degree? Or are in villages, are people much more likely to be staying back and, and holding on uh, to their you know, houses, properties, whatever? So kind of just to just to add a bit more, um, it's not it's not huh. so the first thing you need to understand is that basically the population of whole Kherson Oblast is one million people, and that's the estimate. So it's not that big. It's like one one city, you know. One thing to note is that there are actually around six hundred different villages in Kherson. So the population is not very. It is. 300,000 people living in Kherson, which is kind of predominant, but 70% of people are still living in those little villages. And as you mentioned, it's, you know, because of agriculture and everything else. And what happened is actually uh, Kherson Oblast is considered to be a fruit basket of Ukraine because um, there are a lot of watermelons and other fruits are being grown there. And everybody... Lots, you know, of, lots of soft fruits as well, right? Yes. Lots of stone fruits, some grapes as well, stuff precisely, like that. Precisely, precisely. And uh, one actually of the first wines before... Even, uh, you know, uh, because Crimea was later given as a present and everything, Kherson was in where the Close great... to Novakakhovka, right? There's a yeah, winery precisely. across from Novakakhovka as well. Precisely, precisely. That's why it's the second region where the wine was quite a popular thing to do. So, um, yeah, kind of to go a bit, through, a bit through the stats, as you mentioned previously, it's Kherson that is 300,000, Oleshki and Novakakhovka. They're roughly around the same uh, 70,000 actually people. But then you actually have, um, how should I say it? You have uh, Kahovka, you have, you know, different rayons, as they call them, where the people are living. And it will all account to around 30,000 people per one of those kind of uh, little regions. So um, as, mentioned, as mentioned previously, there are around 36 cities and urban time settlements, and uh, they are called Bereslav, Henichesk, Skvardovsk, Tavrisk, and Oleshki. And uh, there are around 30 urban type settlements. So that's kind of the, so you understand what, what is being, you know, kind of in that region. Um, also to understand in terms of like a whole Ukraine, it is ranked 21st by its population. So it's pretty one of the smallest in Ukraine <clears throat> by the number of people living there. And um, around, so for your understanding is that around 745,000 people live in urban areas. Whereas uh, 40% of people, so around, you know, 38.5, they live in um, agricultural center villages. And yeah, that's pretty much it. But it's, of course, it's predominantly Ukrainian. So 82% of people, they claim themselves to be fully Ukrainian. Um, and 14 were claiming that they're Russians, but they were still speaking either Ukrainian or they were thinking that they, you know, uh, living in Ukraine and they don't have any issues. And they, they were not actually calling for Russians to come. And you, then, you had the second question. Um, you wanted to clarify something, Duman. Yeah, yeah. So, so I was just wondering, what the you know did, did people actually leave any of these villages, or are villages still largely close to their population as to as to pre-invasion as well? Because I'm guessing in villages people are more tight to their to their to their homes, but also you know in these villages they might be experiencing the occupation less on a day-to-day basis for the simple reason that. You know, Russian occupation authorities aren't going to be focusing on tiny villages way behind 
way behind their lines, right? Um, no, so, so uh, because basically the villages, that's the only source of income, right, for those people. So the ones who could leave the urban areas, they left. Someone could stay, they live there. But a lot of locals, they're coming to those, um, you know, urban areas and trying to sell their products there. And that's the only way how they can survive right now. Because they cannot really export their production uh, beyond those lines. They cannot really travel, you know, into independent Ukraine that is not being occupied. And they can't travel to other regions because the Russian soldiers don't allow them. Because they just, you know, they're the block post and everything. And they don't want to have any suspicious activity from them. Because a lot of them can be partisans. So that's why they don't even try to judge them. Um, also, I found quite interesting opinion, uh, public opinion, that when there was a declaration of independence of Ukraine, 90% of votes in Kherson Oblast were in favor. So it just kind of to show you the drastic difference, right? That this is not kind of we are talking about like Crimea, where people 70% of people were voting. It's 90%. It's absolutely dominantly Ukrainian. And uh, yeah. <clears throat> And again, it's very highly agricultural, right? That's something that really needs to be stressed here. Yeah. Kherson yeah, is yeah, incredibly highly agricultural oblast. And this is why Russians have been stealing so much grain as well from Kherson oblast uh, over over the recent months, right? These these trains and these uh, effectively truck convoys as well, full of grain being stolen from Kherson oblast. And this is also why the harvest in free Ukraine this year is, is expected to be so much lower because some of these, you know, southern regions such as Kherson, such as Aporizhia, these oblasts have really a lot of um, a lot of agricultural activity there, right? This is where the soils are among the best. This is where this Chernozyom soil is is present, and these old steps where you know the the Slavs of old, and then the Pechenegs and whomever else used to used to roam. Um, this is where some of the best soil in the world is, right? Just like in the Great Plains in the US and Canada, here is where some of the best soil in the world is. I wouldn't, I mean, just one thing to note is that, um, yes, um, Kherson actually has a lot of those territories, but Kherson is actually very wide, you know, kind of very diverse in terms of biodiversity that is, um, that is actually there because it also hosts uh, one of the biggest deserts in Europe and it's called the Oleski Sands. Yes. So um, it's, you know, it, it, you've got some vegetation next to the Black Sea, but actually it's a desert, <laughs> it's desert, so nothing actually living there. So uh, we should forget, we should remember that as well. And that's why, the, you know, kind of not a lot of people live on those type of territories as it's, um, yeah, it's very hard to have actually agriculture there. Yeah, it's a, it's a very diverse oblast, that, that's for sure, right? And that's what I meant, but it's not that densely populated. There, there's quite a lot of people in there, but they're kind of spread out among different bits of the of the oblast, right? Um, anyway, uh, let's uh, let's go to Mr. Pickle, who's been waiting for a while, and then to Sergio, Mr. Pickle. Yeah, I, I have to say, man, I, I really like your segment because you know a lot and you add a, a lot to the... Uh, to the group, so thank you. Uh, the other thing is, uh, uh, and that question would be for David and any of you. Um, is it the Russian advantage of uh, artillery? Uh, it's going to be greatly diminished um, if you're on the attack, since uh, you're not going to be static. You're, you're not in a trench waiting to be shelled. So basically, their only advantage will be uh, much, uh, much less. Uh, 
effective. Uh, is that correct or I'm missing? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly correct from the perspective that Russian artillery is not that precise. And unless they have um, a fairly stationary target that they can keep keep um, hitting. Or alternatively, there's a... Um, uh, there's a there's a large assembly of say armor in the field. It's kind of hard for them to to hit it very well. Uh, so if it's people on the move, they won't be simply as efficient. They're very good at hitting cities, right? Because when they really don't care at what they hit and uh, and and who they hit, um, then from that perspective, they can be very effective. But it's much harder from uh, to 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 be you know hitting anything that they need to hit with any sort of precision. That's that's true. Really- Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Um, Sergio? Uh, thank you, uh, Don. Uh, and thank you also, Mikola. Um Unfortunately, I haven't been able to, to hear all of your segments um, because I, I've been rather busy. Um, I, um, my, my question is, and I'm, it's, a, it's a tiny bit of a tangent, but I'm sure you can answer it very quickly, is um, when was this, uh, when had this polling taken place of like the, you know, 70% uh, 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 pro-Russian um, population in. I'm sorry. Nineteen ninety-one. Oh, okay. I see. Yeah, I see. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, Make, well, makes okay. sense. Yeah. I was um, just uh, add. So it wasn't 70% people actually favoring Russia. It was 70% of people favoring being part of Ukraine uh, and becoming an independent state. So even in Crimea, the one that is considered to be the most pro-Russian ever. So um, and the way how it works, and I discussed this previously is that um, you need to understand people in Crimea. People in, people in Crimea, they're not very pro-Russian or they're not very pro-Ukrainian. They are pro-interest, okay? And what happens is that in 1991, when they've seen what was happening in Moscow and when they've seen the soldiers are being, you know, and the tanks are actually killing people, they decided that we don't want to take this mass. We don't want to participate in this. And that's why they took uh, the stance of you know, kind of joining Ukraine because they wanted to remain a luxury zone for post-Soviet uh, you know, countries to go there and relax. They didn't want to take uh, any stance on the political or anything else. Is that later that Russians invested a lot of money into propaganda and in order to kind of um, put their soldiers there because the military base was still there and a lot of um, you know, kind of uh, Russian soldiers were serving on a you know, on the island of Crimea. And that's why, that's what you have in the result. You have those people who are 20 years later saying, yeah, we should kind of remain with Russia and everything. And yet you still have people who are protesting and you still have people writing the notes, uh, you know, in Crimea. And recently, um, even to my surprise, I was absolutely well, uh, what happened, they were organizing the Ukrainian concert. So they had the Ukrainian concert on occupied Crimea territory where they were singing Ukrainian songs. And this is the generation of Ukrainians who grew up during the independence of Ukraine. So this is the, you know, kind of my age people, it's 20 years old, who are actually missing Ukraine, who are missing the, you know, kind of Ukrainian songs, who are missing Ukrainian culture, and they want to be back uh, with Ukraine. So when I was talking about 1991, it's just, um, it's, a, it's a good thing to show you that basically uh, now what Russians are claiming is absolute nonsense, because, if um, they can say that, yeah, sure, it's because the population changed and generation changed. Yeah, but sorry, uh, even 30 years ago, your generation that you're claiming to be a protecting one, uh, they were still in favor of Ukraine. 
And that's what I meant. So 70% were actually in favor of Ukraine, even in territory of Crimea. Um, so yeah, it's incomparable. <laughs> I understand. Uh, uh, thank you. Um, um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I'm very ignorant uh, regarding um, Ukraine's uh, history, but um, hasn't the demographic in Crimea changed rather a lot throughout history with forcible deprecations of certain people? Absolutely, absolutely. So the, the reason why that referendum was the way it was, and Mikola can, can jump in and correct me, but I don't believe even the Crimean Tatars by and large will have had returned to Crimea at the point of that referendum, right? I believe they only returned sort of the next year and they would certainly have been uh, not for staying uh, under Kremlin. The other part is after the mass deportation just for any everyone to remember the the, the uh, let's say indigenous uh, peoples of Crimea, the Crimean Tatars, and they weren't just from on Crimea; they were also elsewhere, especially in Kherson Oblast and parts of the Polish Oblast as well. But over the course of three days, and I believe 1944, they were all deported to Central Asia, and I mean all of them. The Soviets removed the entire ethnic group from Crimea over the course of three days right um so that's uh, that that's that's important uh, to, to remember what the soviets did in the 50s was settled lots of russians there because they found Crimea very important from a you know black sea port uh, naval base perspective and they literally settled them in those emptied forcibly emptied Crimean Tatar villages. So yes, absolutely, the Crimean demographics are very much skewed, but they are skewed because of the um, uh, because of the uh, actions by the Kremlin regime. Right, uh, Mikola, what, what did I misstate? Please correct me before we go back to subject. Um, I will just add a few things. So um, I like how the history is actually treating all the Russians, and especially. <laughs> Uh, how, how should you say it? The history still puts everything in place. So, for example, um, you know about Simon Yan, right? Uh, the most uh, screaming woman in... The, the, <laughs> oh, the yeah. second propagandist of the Kremlin after Solomon. Yes, yeah. pretty much. So her parents were deported from Crimea. And that's what I found the most ridiculous thing, right? Why would you defend Russian interests so much and talk about, you know, deporting Ukrainian people and saying that, you know, Ukrainian people should not exist and everything, if your own parents were deported from Crimea. So they were Armenians, so they were not even Tatar, and they were still deported because NKVDs just don't, didn't like them. And, um, yeah, I don't understand how these people switched the sides so easily when your own, <laughs> you know, your own parents were deported from Crimea because of uh, order from Stalin. Now, interesting thing, I will, I will go a bit of, um, in this kind of, um, just to add a bit of things about this. So we know that um, around, um, just a second, I will give you the exact stats. We know that um, around 200,000 200, people were deported over, yeah, around 228,000 people were deported from Crimea, out of which were around 191,000, they were specifically Crimean Tatars. But you had... Also other people uh, who were, you know, Ukrainians, who were Armenians and everything. And the interesting part is that actually a lot of them died during the deportation. So it wasn't just a simple calm deportation. Um, it's almost like 20% of those people, they unfortunately died in exile. And uh, what happened is that later, uh, of course, Russians uh, started to give 
the uh, places, so the houses, the flats and everything to the people who were excelling in, uh, you know, in the times in the Soviet climbing the ladder, what was it called, the uh, getting the party ticket and everything. So the people who were actually really, really good um, at following the regime and, you know, being the best in it, that's the ones who would get the permission to settle in Crimea. So we're not talking about just a regular ordinary Russian. No, 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 no. This is not the people who are going to be sent there. That's the people who are going to be sent to Donetsk, to the Lugansk, to southern region of Ukraine, something like that. But Crimea, no way. Because Crimea was actually a closed city. So I'll tell you a bit of a backstory because it's important to understand. Crimea had the military base. And it also had um, the exit, of course, through the Black Sea to, you know, kind of... Uh, what's called humanitarian one and that's why the um what was it? the submarines were stationed in sevastopol okay so that's why the sevastopol was classified as a closed city so what means the closed city it means that nobody except the people who were allowed to stay there to actually remain there and leave so that means only the families of the military it means uh, some people who are actually in the government uh, and the people who were visiting, um, if they were giving the 